From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrin. Hey friends, welcome aboard. Good to have you with us. Just before I left for Greece, I think this past summer, my technical producer, Tim Spreen, was telling me about this uh, movie that he had seen, this documentary called Room 237. And uh, Tim, you, 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 and uh, I... I hadn't seen it, hadn't heard of it, uh, and he said, "Yeah, it's it's all about the uh, the hidden messages in the uh, the, the, the movies of, of Stanley Kubrick, in particular, of course, uh, The Shining, which was uh, a nineteen, I believe, it was a nineteen eighty uh, uh, movie that came out, an adaptation of Stephen King's uh, movie. You remember Jack Nicholson, Shelley Duvall, this couple uh, are um, basically." Uh, snowed in at this, uh, in this hotel. It actually exists. It's in, uh, Colorado. Uh, Rosemary Ellen Guiley, who joins us from time to time, um, well, regularly on the program, has spent, uh, a great deal of time there <laughs> investigating. It's, it's very, uh, it's a very famous hotel, haunted. And, uh, uh, anyway, it's a, you know, horrific, uh, situation that happens to this family. Jack Nicholson, of course, goes absolutely bonkers. Uh, but, but many people have different theories as to what, you know, what Kubrick was trying to tell us in that film. Uh, and not only that, in others, and I, and I have talked to, um, another filmmaker, Jay Widener, I believe, who has explored this theme, the hidden messages in the films of Stanley Kubrick. And Kubrick was a very, very interesting, uh, cat, to say the least. Didn't do a lot of interviews. Maybe one, I think, with the media in his entire career, which has sort of led to, you know, a lot of speculation as to who is he working for and was he the man responsible for faking the lunar landing, the moon landing, Apollo 11, uh, filming it on a soundstage and so forth. So there's this whole mystique surrounding Stanley Kubrick and his films. So then I, I watched Room 237. It's a magnificent uh, film, and if you haven't seen it, I really encourage you to do so. So I thought, well, we've got to get this filmmaker on and talk about it because we've talked about, you know, the fake lunar landings and we've talked about some of the other things, you know, Kubrick and Eyes Wide Shut. Was he was he sort of the Illuminati's designated filmmaker and was he trying to, you know, tell us that this was what this is what's going on in the world with that film, his final film uh, before he died. So a great pleasure, having said all that, to welcome Rodney Asher, the director, editor of the film, Room 237. As I say, a documentary exploring the signs, symbols, meanings, metaphors, uh, and it includes five uh, very different people who have sort of discovered within Kubrick's The Shining uh, all these different meanings. Rodney Asher is the winner of the 2012 Fantastic Fest Award for Best Director Documentary and the 2012 IDA Creative Achievement Award for Best Editing. Working with producer Vernon Chapman, he edited Andy Kaufman's first comedy album, Andy and His Grandmother. And previous work includes numerous independent shorts, including the infamous The S from Hell, as well as TV commercials, internet quickies, and music videos. Rodney Asher, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for, thanks for having me. And uh, congratulations again on, uh, on Room 237. I, I really enjoyed it. Uh, interesting uh, sort of subtitle uh, for Room 237 is uh, Many Ways In, No Way Out. Can you explain sort of the subtitle for those people who haven't seen the movie? Sure. Well, you know, one of the central metaphors you know, of The Shining is the labyrinth. And one of the um, sort of exciting things in researching this project 
um, you know, my partner, producer Tim Kirk, was, you know, we started finding so much research that people were doing into, you know, the secrets of The Shining, and, you know, we were very excited to explore them, but we took a step back at one point and said, are we sure we want to do this about The Shining? Is there maybe another film that's generated more of this stuff? And as we looked around, you know, we looked at 2001, we looked at Eyes Wide Shut, we looked at Mulholland Drive, you know, a handful of other films. Nothing, you know, sort of has generated nearly as much, you know, speculation and inquiry as The Shining did. So we were, you know, very excited to stay on course and to stay with The Shining, you know, and, you know, one of a hundred reasons, you know, that seemed to confirm that choice was that in some ways, you know, Room 237 and The Shining are very similar films in that, you know, there's stories of people lost in a maze. Now, we should explain the name of the film, Room 237, in the hotel. What is the connection between that room and the supposed fake lunar set that Kubrick supposedly created? Sure. Well, I mean, that's all, you know, Jay Widener's theory. And he's made two DVDs. I think he's working on a third now, you know, just exploring Kubrick in himself, and he's written a lot about it online, um, you know, the the shortest version, if we're only talking about the number itself, is that, I guess in the late 70s, when they were putting together The Shining, the textbook figure for the distance between the Earth and the Moon is 237,000 miles. And one of the main questions when people look at things that have changed from, you know, The Shining the book to Shining the movie, is the number of the room where, you know, all the worst and the hotel happens, you know, kind of the black heart of the hotel. And in the book, the number was 217, and he changed it to 237. So there's long been a story that, you know, the owners of, I guess this would have been the Timberline Lodge, which is the hotel that they shoot an exterior of that represents the Overlook, and they kind of wanted them to change the number because they had a 217, and they were afraid that, um, you know, guests, would get a little freaked out by staying in, in such an infamous room. Jay says that's, in fact, not the case. But whether or not it is, you know, there's a limitless number of alternate room numbers they could have given it. So, you know, it makes you think about the significance of the number 237. And I know um, I look at it, and it seems like sort of perfectly wrong number, like whether it's a prime number or a Fibonacci number that... It's like unbalanced in a way that, that that makes it feel very wrong. And one of the reasons, you know, we called this film Room 237 is there's so many mysteries about concerning that room in the movie, not the least of which, and this isn't something that I think gets talked a lot about when people are, are discussing the movie, but sort of the central event of the film is when Danny goes into the room um, and he comes back out, you know, with his sweater torn and he's sucking his thumb and he's obviously been through something traumatic. Well, we never see or even hear described, at least not from Danny's mouth, what happened in that room, which is so unlike conventional filmmaking. You know, they may make it a mystery, but they would reveal it at the end. But Kubrick never reveals it. You know, just like the black and white photo at the end, you know, in some ways it seems like it's being presented you know, as if it's the rosebud moment from Citizen Kane, you know, kind of a skeleton key that will, you know, help you decode the rest of the movie. But that photograph and that date at the end, 
you know, July 4th, 1927, does nothing of the kind. You know, it, it, it launches you into a new mystery. And you mentioned Danny, and of course he's wearing this Apollo sweater. Uh, yeah. And then there's the, and, the room key itself, uh, you know, that, that, that says room in big capital letters, R-O-O-M, and no, room number 237. Uh, and as Widener has pointed out, you know, there's only, only, uh, you can only come up with, uh, two words that have those letters in them, and that's moon and room. So the key on the tag, uh, the key or oh, the yeah, tag, it says moon room. <laughs> Yeah, well, he's noticed so many amazing details in the movie. Um, but I, I'd also go on to say that ghosts don't necessarily need room keys. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> yes. Fair enough. What is it about Kubrick? Let's talk about The Shining. I mean, it's probably the, the most famous horror film ever made, arguably. I mean, it's studied at universities. Many books have been written about it. I mean, there's academic analysis that goes on about this film. What is it about The Shining? Well, like I said, there's mysteries in it that never get revealed. You know, and I often compare it to the movie The Sixth Sense, which is a good little horror movie. But, you know, I remember the moments of the movie, and, you know, we figure out who's a ghost and who's not and what's been going on, you know, in the entire course of the film. And I left that movie satisfied, and I enjoyed it. I never really thought about it again and was never curious to revisit it. But because Shining leaves so many details unresolved, it nags at you, you know, and you get called back to it thinking that, you know, this is going to be the time, this is going to be the viewing where it's going to finally make sense. And in a way, it's kind of maddening and can't. You know, I also look at it and compare it to other films, you know, that are more plainly symbolic than The Shining, you know, plenty of difficult, you know, European art films. Holy Mountain, Exterminating Angel, you know, plainly symbolic, challenging movies, but none of them are as immediately accessible as The Shining. You know, in some ways, it's kind of the perfect sweet spot between a mainstream entertainment and a challenging, complicated, ambiguous work of art. Now, it's more than three decades old, this movie. You know, it came out in 1980, I think it was, or 81. Yeah. So here we are 30 years later. So why a documentary about sort of the hidden meanings in that movie now? Well, we found that people are thinking about the show more now than ever. You know, Jay Widener is one of them and four other folks. Um, and except for Bill Blakemore, who, you know, wrote his, wrote down his thoughts about The Shining in the late 80s, everybody was doing it recently. And that was a question, you know, that we found really interesting. You know, why why is this movie some sort of time bomb that took 30 years to go off? But, you know, if you notice, next week, and coincidentally enough, the Room 7 DVD comes out on the same day as Stephen King's sequel to The Shining. You know, so he's been thinking about those characters, too, and finally spurred to action, you know. We don't, you know, 237 as, you know, a symptom of some sort of obsession about the shining that just seems to be spreading. We'll uh, take a time out and come back with Rodney Asher, director-editor of Room 237, as we examine the hidden messages in the films of Stanley Kubrick. Stay with us.
The owners of the system are asleep. Now we can play. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Rodney Asher is with us, director, editor of the documentary Room 237, which examines some of the countless conspiracy theories, if you will, some of them outlandish, some of them potentially plausible, in the, uh, the movie The Shining, Stanley Kubrick's 1980 masterpiece. It's interesting, the collection here of, of individuals that are featured in the film commenting on this. You mentioned uh, the ABC News correspondent, Bill Blakemore. Tell me a little bit more about Blakemore and how he became involved, not only in this project, but an ABC News correspondent who's totally immersed himself in sort of the imagery, the metaphors, and the hidden meanings in Kubrick's films, specifically The Shining. I find that fascinating. Yeah, well, Bill's amazing. And talking with him, you know, I found out that he doesn't really consider himself a film buff so much as just a Kubrick buff, you know, and a lot of his tastes are, you know, very classical, very into Shakespeare, and much more than other contemporary filmmakers. But something about Kubrick and General The Shining in particular just really resonate with him. And, you know, he's traveled the world, and he's covered international conflict and wars. So when he started to see, you know, sort of allusions to cycles of violence and imperialism and, and even Native American genocide in The Shining, it really struck him. You know, and he's seen sort of similar things in other Kubrick films. In any case, when he heard a little bit about Full Metal Jacket, he decided to take some time and put his thoughts about The Shining down. You know, he wrote an essay that was syndicated in American newspapers in 1987. You know, a lot of it springs off of sort of the Native American imagery within the movie. And, you know, I talked to a lot of people who read his article you know, in school, in film school or in film appreciation classes. And for a lot of people, for a long time, his reading of the movie was sort of seen as the um, sort of symbolic take of The Shining, you know, of record. That and, being uh, that The Shining is about genocide of the uh, Native Americans. Yeah, well, like the Overlook Hotel is, you know, on the graveyard of Native Americans. And like a lot of people, you know, see Overlook Hotel in some ways. You know, as symbolizing America itself. That hotel was built on a graveyard. You could say the entire nation, you know, was built on a gigantic graveyard, you know, in the footsteps of people who came before. And he had a really nice way of, it might have been like the mother of a friend of his, but, you know, people were talking about The Shining, and, you know, he's often bringing it up in conversation, and somebody sort of crystallized what the movie meant to them, you know, which was sins of the past. And... Like, that really resonates with me, thinking about this as a story of unstoppable cycles of violence. And both in the small picture, you know, like the Torrance family and how Jack abused Danny before the movie starts, you know, and then it cycles back on again. But then violence within the hotel, violence within America, violence within the world. Danny is the one, you know, who kind of sees the way to break the cycle, you know, by researching your past and backing out, you know, sort of symbolically in your um, in the footsteps. Like one of the one so one of the things I love about the way Bill talks about the movie is, you know, not only does he see, you know, sort of these shadows of horror and tragedy within the movie, but he also can kind of read, you know, maybe a hopeful message for how to turn it around. 
The the um, I guess the clues or the hints in the film that what Kubrick was trying to talk about was Native American genocide. Very subtle. I mean, unless you're really paying attention, and I guess not until the advent maybe of videotape and you know VHS, where people were able to first sort of stop and examine the film frame by frame, would you be able to see, for example, sitting on one of the shelves is this big can of calame baking powder, this big canister adorned with the image of a Native American sort of in traditional garb. What are some of the other clues that Blakemore points out that The Shining is about Native American genocide? Well, there's other lines of dialogue from the management of the hotel. There's a ton of actually Native American decor within the film, paintings on the wall, portraits, those gigantic Navajo, um, I think they're Navajo, I could be wrong, um, sort of tapestries that Jack is tossing the tennis ball against. And he compares that in a way that I thought was really striking, sort of Napoleon troops taking target practice when they were in Egypt. You know, that kind of casual, playful, you know, destruction of you know, this beautiful ancient, you know, artifact. There's also a throwaway line that really struck me, where as Danny and Wendy are leaving the hotel and they're running off to the maze, Wendy says, loser has to keep America clean. And for any, for, for an American growing up in the 70s, there was that PSA with a crying Indian, which to this day, you know, is maybe has, has some nostalgic camp value. But in the day when that came out, you know, and the, America, the, the Native American was sort of canoeing toward Garden River, and he comes up on a, into a clearing, and it's this horrible superhighway, and somebody throws a pile of trash at his feet, and he turns to the camera and, a, and, and cries a single tear. And it just reduced all of us to bawling. It was iconic, absolutely, yes. And when she and when she says "loser keeps America clean," she's totally. It's totally evocative of that line because it says "keep America clean," you know. And she's calling Native Americans losers. She's also you know, like at another point in the film wearing a yellow jacket that has sort of Indian prints on it. And, you know, you could say that in some ways she's coded as a Native American for, you know, when Jack turns on her, uh, you know, and is chasing her with the axe. And the axe itself, you know, Bill sees as a symbol of, you know, westward expansion and clearing the forests. Because in the book, again, um, you know, Jack didn't use an axe. He used a croquet mallet. That's right. That's right. And, you know, in... Though Jay Widener is the one who, like, really explicitly and had a great way of saying it, it's when you look looking at details of things that have been changed from the. Oh, we lost you there. Are you still with us, Rodney? His cell phone cut out. Rodney Asher is uh, on the line from, uh, I believe he's he's in Los Angeles or uh, certainly in California, and the uh, director and editor of a documentary film that came out uh, last year. Uh, received a great many uh, accolades and critical praise, also won uh, a lot of awards. It's called Room 237, and essentially it examines uh, the hidden meanings, messages inside Kubrick's The Shining, which of course was the uh, 1980 or 81 uh, film adaptation of Stephen King's novel. Uh, you've probably uh, seen the film a, a couple of times, and... It's it's one of those films that certainly stays with you, uh, but you may not be aware that this film has probably well. In one article I was reading, uh, it suggested uh, you know that the um, the analysis 
of the shining, the academic analysis of the shining, uh, almost rivals, uh, you know, the, the Talmud. Uh, but it's, it's interesting. If you talk to Kubrick aficionados, uh, they will, uh, they'll corner you in a room and talk your ear off about the hidden meanings and messages inside The Shining and what their particular theory is. And we're talking with, about those with, uh, with Rodney Asher. We've talked about, uh, you know, the, uh, the Apollo 11, uh, lunar landing and whether this was Kubrick's confession, uh, you know, that he was so conflicted about, uh, you know, staging and filming the, uh, the lunar landing on a stage or a sound stage. Uh, that he, you know, he was just dying to, to sort of tip us off to that fact, and that's what The Shining is about, and of course others like Bill Blakemore, ABC News correspondent, a Kubrick aficionado. Um, his take on it is that it's about Native American genocide. Uh, the other, the other theory, and there are many, uh, we're only going to touch on a few of them here, is that uh, the, the Shining is really a movie about the Holocaust. Uh, Rodney, explain. Well, this comes from, there's, um, one of the people we speak to is Professor Jeffrey Cox, who specializes in, um, in German history and particularly German World War II history. And there are a couple of things, like, you know, I think like the way that Bill and even Jay Widener come at it is first a single detail comes out that reminds you of something and seems kind of strange and out of place. And then the more you look around, you find more details that you know, kind of sort of confirm that point of view and deepen it and, you know, have more and more allusions to it. And I think the two things that he first, that that Professor Cox first noticed, one was a typewriter that Jack used, um, that it was a German brand, it had an eagle on it. Eagle is a symbol of the Third Reich. Um, And he thought about typewriters in general and... There's a book about the Holocaust, the destruction of the European Jews, and sort of the emphasis of that book is what a bureaucratic process it was. You know, that, um, you know, putting aside the horror of it for a second, think about just administratively what a complicated, gigantic project it was, and how many, you know, sort of middle managers and typists and clerks had to be involved in coordinating it. Um, you know, so the banality of evil. Exactly. You know, so of typewriters. There's a lot of lists. There's a lot of repetition. You know, so there's both Schindler's List. You know, which was you know a, a list for good, but there were you know so many more of these horrible lists. Um, and Jeffrey's written a book on the subject um, called The Wolf at the Door, and then he edited another one, an anthology with other people's writings as well. And the typewriter kind of opened it up for him, and he saw that throughout the film, the number 42 kept recurring. And the number 42, among other things, in 1942 was the year where, I forget the name, there was a, I think a council, you know, where the Nazis moved forward with the final solution. And with those two things that sort of put him on that track, and then he started looking at the film closer and closer and closer. Here's the moment when Jack says, uh, little pigs, little pigs, let me in, not by the hair of your chinny chin chin. And he's channeling the big bad wolf. Well, there's a 1930s um, version of the um, of the three little pigs that Disney produced. And, you know, back then, you know, 
Disney, I guess they had a reputation for um, you know, anti-Semitic imagery in their films. And gosh, if you look at the character that the Big Bad Wolf disguised himself as, you know, it looks like a Yiddish, you know, Jordan gentleman and kind of a mean caricature of one. Um, and that's the the version you know, that Kubrick would have seen when he was a little kid, you know, in New York. Um, so these kind of details, you know, accumulate. Right. I watched the film, and right, and, and his thoughts dovetail really nicely with Jeffrey's. I mean, in in some ways, that I mean, with Bill's, and someone. Although we're talking about, um, you know, a different a different time and a different place, it's sort of the same subject. You, you, uh, you, we were both sort of struggling to figure. It was the Wansi Conference in 1942, uh, where the, the yeah, final yeah, solution yeah. was was uh, decided on. Uh, the the other thing you mentioned again, the typewriter, and of course, uh, you know, what is Jack? Uh, supposedly working on the, you know, the great American novel, and what is he typing over and over and over again? All work and no play makes Jack a dull boy, which I guess what symbolizes uh, again this mechanical, uh, mechanical, methodical uh, process by which, you know, the, Jew- the Jews were exterminated in, in such a cold and soulless and heartless manner. Yeah, well, when you look at the way that Wendy reacts when she sees that paper, it's kind of played as the most horrifying moment in the film. Yes, yes. Uh, what what do we um, what do we ascribe uh, this to? I mean, let's crawl inside Kubrick's mind if that's even possible. I mean, I mean, this guy was was said to have an IQ uh, somewhere around two hundred. Uh, you know, absolutely, you know, brilliant. I mean, that, that doesn't even do the justice to describe his intelligence. Uh, and yet, you know, you see in this in The Shining. A lot of things which appear to be um, uh, continuity issues, you know, where where uh, they'll take a shot and on 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 in the frame you'll see something, and then when you go back to that shot, it's not there anymore. Uh, so, which is which is sort of fed into this whole, you know, into this, the mystique and the legend. Uh, were they continuity errors, or was Kubrick, because of his you know incredible intellect, was he using those as symbols? Well, what do you make of that? Tell us. Tell us what you th- what, what you think of of what was going on inside Kubrick's mind. Well, I mean, there's well, if we're going to talk about the continuity errors, and certainly it may be that some of them are errors, but there's an awful lot of them, you know. And he's somebody with a reputation for being incredibly methodical for doing a thousand takes. And you know, I've seen reproductions of continuity photos that were taken on set. You know, those little Polaroids they take to make sure that. You know, the pens on the desk are in the right place, you know, from shot to shot to shot. You know, so it wasn't necessarily, it wasn't a workplace. Um, like, I was teaching an editing class while I was working on the film, and one thing I liked to do was, you know, we spent, you know, in the first part of the, you know, of, of the year talking about the rules of filmmaking, you know, the um, conventions that they needed to maintain, you know, for the film to look professional. Then I started screening scenes from movies that would break these rules. You know, things like Soderbergh's The Limey, you know, or um, William Friedkin's um, To Live and Die in L.A. And, you know, when you know that the filmmaker is a professional, is experienced, and in fact, you know, is a master, and you see that every technical quality, you know, is at the highest level from the, you know, camera work to the lighting to the design, when you see things that seem like errors, they're at least worth considering 
as being intentional. All right, listen, we'll take a we'll take a time out, Rodney. Come back, and maybe we yeah. can talk a couple of those those uh, seemingly con- uh, what seem like continuity errors, and in fact may may in fact be little hints or hidden messages contained in Stanley Kubrick's yep. movies like The Shining. Back with more of the Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. In a democracy, we elect officials so we can sleep at night. So why are you up? We're examining hidden messages inside Stanley Kubrick's 1981 masterwork, uh, The Shining. And uh, Rodney Asher is with us, the director, editor of the critically acclaimed documentary, Room 237, uh, which features five uh, sort of theories as to what Kubrick was trying to tell us in the movie The Shining. And uh, these range from... Uh, well, it was a, uh, a Kubrick's confession that he had uh, uh, faked the uh, the lunar landing, the Apollo 11 lunar landing, had uh, filmed it on a soundstage somewhere, I guess, in the Nevada desert or where have you. Uh, others contend that it is, in fact, a movie about genocide uh, of the um, uh, you know, American natives. Uh, and still others contend that it is a movie about uh, the Holocaust. Now, we're talking about some of the little, uh, the strange, some call them uh, continuity errors. But if you really pay attention to the film, and again, I mentioned, you know, the advent of, uh, of uh, videotape, the VHS, rather, and, and where people were able to actually, you know, examine the film frame by frame. Um, one of the interesting things I found was Stuart Ullman, uh, the character Stuart Ullman, who is the, uh, the hotel uh, manager. And he's uh, sort of interviewing Jack Jack Nicholson's character at the beginning of the film. Uh, Nicholson is supposed to be, he and his family are sort of caretakers uh, while the hotel shuts down for the season and through the winter months. And if you look at it sort of frame by frame, Stuart Ullman is making these very bizarre hand gestures. Uh, he's not just, you know, folding his hands as he's seated at the desk. He's, he's making very peculiar hand gestures. Uh, what do you make of those, Stuart? Oh, sorry, Rodney. <laughs> what do you make yeah. of Stuart Ullman's hand gestures? Well, you know, actually, those aren't called out within the film. Um, is this something you've noticed, or is that I, I had. I just, I was just, just, um, I had made a few notes when I had watched The Shining again, and I, 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 uh, I just wondered if, if you had noticed that, or if any of your, uh, any of the people that you'd commented. Yeah, I know it's not I'm in the movie. In your, it's I'm, not I'm in your documentary, but. Yeah, I'm excited because this is a new one to me. None of us, none of the folks that um, we talked to brought this up, and I don't think I've come across it um, reading about The Shining. Yeah, well, if, 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 you, uh, if, you, if, you, if you go back to that scene where Ullman is seated at the desk, uh, he's making some very unnatural hand gestures. Uh, I, I, just, I, I just made a note of that, and I just wanted to get your take. I didn't know if you had, um, if you had ever discussed that. I, knew it, I know it's not in your documentary. Uh, but some of the other um, interesting um, uh, sort of I don't know, some call them gaffes, some call them continuity issues. Uh, you know, did, what uh, what can you tell about us about some of those uh, and the significance? Well, maybe? there's a really good one that I had never noticed that Jeffrey Cox called out, where um, when Danny, at the beginning of the film, is talking to Tony, that there's that we're looking at him through, um, past, you know, past the wall, past the door to his room, and there's all these stickers on the on the on the door, and one of them is Dopey from the Seven Dwarfs. Right, right, right. So he's looking in the mirror and he's talking to Tony, and he gets this vision of blood 
and horror. And then when he wakes up inside in his room and he's being consoled by, the, by his mom and his doctor, if you look at the wall behind him, that sticker is gone. And Jeffrey says, because at this point he has seen the vision of what's happening and what, and what has happened, and he's no longer a dope, you know, that, that, that he's lost a layer of naivete and that's signaled by, you know, dopey disappearing. Is there any particular uh, theory that you give more credence to as to what what Kubrick was tr- trying to tell us in The Shining? Is there one that you think is more plausible than than the other? Well, you know, it's hard for me to do because you know, getting into this, my assumption was going to be that you know, five different people, five different points of view that they couldn't that they couldn't all be right, and that there must be at least an idea or two that I could dismiss not necessarily as not interesting or not significant, but as probably not Kubrick's intent. But, you know, the more you drill down, in a way it's like, you know, impressionist art, but it, 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 turn, it, it kind of dissolves in your hands that I could always find a yes, but no, but maybe kind of justification for any one particular detail that they brought up. I know, like when I was a kid, you know, maybe I was 10... 10 years old when I figured out that the giving tree, you know, was actually about, you know, the sacrifices that a mother goes through for her child and that, you know, that story and, you know, all the kids' stories I had read were working on two levels. You know, I see no reason to think that The Shining, you know, can't be working on five or more. All right, we'll take another time out. This was a short break. Come back and uh, a few moments remain with Rodney Asher. Oh, just before we go into break, uh, remind us, uh, the DVD release and Blu-ray release of uh, room 237 is when, Rodney? Uh, September 24th. September 24th, just around the corner. Just around the corner. All right. Back with more of my conversation with Rodney and our discussion on Room 237, the hidden meanings inside Stanley Kubrick's The Shining. Poking holes in the darkness. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. To see the light, call Richard now at 416-360-0740. Rodney Asher stays with us as we discuss his documentary film, Room 237, uh, which is an examination of the uh, various theories regarding the hidden messages that may or may not be contained in uh, Stanley Kubrick's horror film, perhaps the most celebrated horror film of all time, The Shining. And um, what I mean, what has been the, the uh, I guess, the feedback from Stanley Kubrick's camp? I mean, Stanley Kubrick, of course, passed away, but, uh, you know, people that worked maybe on the film or people that worked closely with Kubrick, what do they make of the film, of, of Room 237? Well, I've only talked to one of them in person, you know, which is who's Leon Vitale, who was, you know, Kubrick's assistant, and he played... Um, you know, Lord Bullingdon, um, and Barry Lyndon, um, an amazing actor and you know, a guy I was really excited to meet. And he was initially kind of dismissive of a lot of these ideas. We actually had a great roundtable debate. Him, me, and Jay White were on the same panel with uh, Mick Garris, who directed the um, TV movie version. Um, and you know, it was it was a pretty lively debate, and it was funny because you know he would say things like. You know, the Calumet can wasn't picked because of the Native American imagery, but for the color, um, which to me still seemed 
significant that 30 years on, he remembered, you know, this prop, which was, you know, kind of an incidental, um, you know, set dressing, is being picked very specifically, <laughs> you know, for the scene. And even the color red that it, that it is, is a color that people have talked about, um, you know, very specifically, you know, as having meaning, you know, throughout his films. Um, you know, and his producer, Jan Harlan, was, it was interesting, he was, I, I, I've never spoken with him personally, and, um, and um, you know, he was dismissive of some details, but he confirmed others, um, you know, things about the impossible, almost M.C. Escher-esque landscape within the hotel. And, you know, I totally respect, you know, his opinion. If, if the idea of, you know, 237 is that different people see The Shining differently, you know, he's going to see it, you know, more differently, <laughs> much, much, much differently than us. But even people who are there can't necessarily speak for, you know, what was for choices he made, you know, that were, that, that he didn't necessarily talk about. You know, people don't always explain every decision they make to everyone that they work with. Um, and there's also, you know, so much to say about, you know, subconscious choices. You know, you pick this actor instead of that one, this costume instead of this, that prop, and they all, and, and, and they all add up for, to one thing, um, you know, to, 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 to one thing or another. What do you what do you make of the theory that the that the, the Shining is a film that's meant to be seen both forwards and backwards? Uh, in fact, if you were to project it simultaneously, with one version being played the normal way and the other being superimposed and run backwards uh, from beginning to ending, uh, from sorry from end to beginning, the the sort of the resulting images are are, are quite interesting. Uh, you know, the, where certain scenes overlay on 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 others, and it seems to be. Uh, again, uh, you know, able you're able to appreciate it at a whole different meaning or a whole different level. Yeah, no, that is uncanny. That this guy John Phil Ryan um, was inspired to do it. Reading um, something else that um, this guy, the Mastermind, had written about it, um, and the idea very loosely was um, when you look at the structure of the film, in some ways, it's an inversion of 2001: A Space Odyssey. You know, and People have talked about how if 2001 is about the evolution of mankind, um, The Shining is a, de- is a de-evolution, a descent into savagery. And if you just very quickly think about the structure of the film, the beginning of the movie is a tour of these locations that we revisit again later. So for a bunch of reasons, you know, the idea was that maybe scenes at the beginning are meant to be seen like very much... Um, in juxtaposition with scenes from the end. And, you know, certainly, um, you know, Kubrick is a symmetrical filmmaker. You know, the left and the right of the frame are often very balanced. You know, or you think of a movie like Full Metal Jacket, which is in these, really, these two distinct pieces that kind of echo each other. So they set up this screening where they projected it forwards and backwards, simultaneously superimposed, and the way things lined up just gave everybody the willies. And we do a short, you know, tour through some of the highlights in 237, but I've seen the entire thing projected, you know, with an audience, and their jaw just hits the floor as things happen, like Lloyd the bartender says, you know, women, you can't live with them and you can't live without them. And floating over the frame are the is the young woman and the old hag from room 237. I mean, it's 
and that kind of thing just happens again and again and again as you watch the film. It's it's uh, it, it reminds me of uh, when someone first brought to my attention that if you if you sync up uh, the the Pink Floyd album Dark Side of the Moon uh, and you cue it so that it uh, begins where the uh, I guess the um, Metro Golden um, Mayor Lion in the beginning of the Wizard of Oz and uh, are you familiar with that uh, the, oh, yeah. the synchronicities no, between. You know, I thought a lot about that, too, and I don't know if it's totally related, but, you know, when I think about that experiment, you know, assuming that it wasn't intentional from the band, and that seems to be, you know, the um, what, what's most likely based on interviews with them, I think it says something just wonderful about, you know, the way storytelling has evolved, long-form storytelling over thousands of years, that, you know, sort of these patterns recur, you know, whether you're writing a long rock album or um, making a movie that, you know, five minutes in, you know, things start to get serious. Fifteen minutes in, maybe there's a reversal of some sort, and that kind of pattern recurs in these different in, in these different works. You know, and you put them together, and it's kind of, you know, eerie and uncanny to see the relationships. Or perhaps it just says, it says more about our need as humans to find these patterns, uh, and and uh, you know, it's nothing more than that. It's not coming necessarily from the artist. It's coming from the audience. Yeah, well, I wouldn't dismiss that as something you know, insignificant or uninteresting either. Absolutely not. No, no. Well, Kubrick was was uh, very recalcitrant. He didn't like to talk to the to the media very much. I mean, I guess he would speak uh, when he had to when when a, when a film of his was being released, um, and I guess that. His, he, he, he seems to have been a very sort of secretive person. Uh, maybe that's not necessarily true, but that's sort of the image that we're left with because of you know his, I guess his unwillingness to speak to the media. Uh, has that also been responsible for sort of playing into this mystique and the legend surrounding you know the messages that may or may not be in his films? I think so. I mean. Well, for one part, on the one hand, I think he was, you know, smart not to talk too much about the themes and the symbols within his film and to allow the audience to engage with it and to wonder, you know, to answer the questions themselves. You know, there's a quote, you know, where he said something along the lines of, um, you know, the Mona Lisa wouldn't be improved if there was a little plaque underneath saying, you know, she's smiling this way, thinking about, you know, what her lover would have looked like when he was a little boy. Because you know, then there would be <laughs> no reason to no reason to wonder. Um, though, what's interesting, I guess, you know, if you parse that, is that doesn't necessarily mean that it isn't about something in specific, even if he's allowing you to um, <laughs> look at it how you will. I know this wasn't the uh, the subject matter of of your film, uh, Room Two Thirty Seven, uh, but uh, his last film, Eyes Wide Shut. Um, you know, and people talk about the occult symbolism in that in that movie, and, and Jay Widener, you know, and he, he's been on my show. We've talked about uh, the theory that Kubrick was sort of the Illuminati's designated filmmaker, uh, and that he and this, in, in large measure, was why he was so secretive and didn't want to talk uh, or wasn't permitted, perhaps, to talk. Did you and Jay uh, have those sorts of conversations during the making of the, mil- the movie? A little bit, and I think, and we've got a little. We we, we have we have a, like a small, 
we, 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 with a very small discussion of that as a deleted scene within 237, but uh, those themes are much more present in, um, you know, in Eyes Wide Shut. Um, you know, and I think if you're going to say that, you know, kind of the, that, that, that kind of stuff might be the equivalent of in Eyes Wide Shut as sort of the moon landing sequence within um, Room 237. I know I was excited. This it, it was too late to get into two three seven, but you know I discovered that there were folks who looked at that. There's a there's a scene in two three seven where there's a woman who sees um, a lot of Minotaur imagery within The Shining, and she talks about um, the poster skier that looks sort of like a Minotaur, and the word over it is monarch, and she sees that you know as an allusion to you know sort of the um, um, the decadent ruling class, the kings, the, um, I think, like, like um, Stuart Ullman says, royalty estate at the hotel. Um, and there's that, but when you get into, you know, some of the ways that people have been talking about Eyes Wide Shut, uh, with both ideas about the Illuminati or mind control, you know, the Mark program comes up. So I was, you know, very excited to see just within that one poster, there are these two radically different you know, symbolic reads, um, but um, you know we're only able we're only able to get so much into two, three, seven. And there were moments where I tried to suggest that what we're seeing in it was only the tip of the iceberg. So, what's next for uh, for you, uh, Rodney? I mean, are you going to uh, pursue other projects that involve uh, symbolism in Kubrick's films? Um. Not at least not in the short term. I'm, I'm, I may be trying to do too many things at once. I've got like two or three things that I'm doing at the same time, but none of them are are, are um, specifically about Stanley Kubrick right now. What did uh, what did this kind of was, is my big Stanley Kubrick project at least for at least for right now? Sure. What what, what do we know? What Stephen King um, thought of of Kubrick's reworking of his of his novel <laughs> he wasn't crazy about it and why did he say well I, i've heard things you know i i've heard that um he didn't think it was scary that he was disappointed that um kubrick downplayed some of the themes of alcoholism um and he's promoting you know his sequel to it now and he talks about this the kubrick film is being cold and unsympathetic to wendy um no, and it's interesting because he actually, you know, was so interested in, in in seeing another version of the Shining as a film that in the '90s he produced and writ and wrote, you know, a, like a six-hour-long miniseries, a version that's totally different that Mick Harris directed, and it's you know really interesting to you know take a look at them back to back. Indeed. Well, listen, uh, uh, Rodney, I really appreciate your time, and we should also mention once again that the uh, the DVD and Blu-ray uh, a, a release of Room 237 is uh, coming up in just a few days, September the 24th, and people will be able to pick that up, and I really encourage them to do so. It's, it's fascinating. Whether you're a Kubrick fan, whether you just love The Shining, uh, this will give you a whole new insight into the film. Again, Rodney, thank you. Appreciate your time. Oh, sure. Great to talk to you. Thanks. Rodney Asher, the uh, director-editor of Room 237. All right. 
My thanks to uh, Tim Spreen for technical production. Back next week, uh, Don Schmidt, the Roswell investigator, will be along, along with our good friend Victor Vigiani from Zealand News Network, to talk about Roswell deathbed confessions. We'll also touch on uh, Don's new book, uh, which, which talks about Wright-Patterson Air Force Base and uh, whether or not that's the real Area 51. And... We're working on a few other things, I believe. Uh, very shortly, we'll have Canada's Edgar Casey, Douglas James Cottrell back on the program talking about earth changes, solar storms, the possibility of a financial collapse, and so forth. Hope you'll be along for that. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night.